Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Moherker. I'm a student at Drexel University College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. Hypertension and hyperlipidemia are some of the most common chronic conditions that affect our patient populations. I think they're a little bit tough to study at the step one level, though, because we have to know a lot of details about how these diseases come about and their pharmacology. And I mean, when I was studying, I know I had a tough time understanding kind of the big picture of these conditions. So today, I'd like to review both hypertension and hyperlipidemia, but I'd like to do it in a way that helps give you a better understanding of that big picture. So for each condition, we're going to talk about why we treat when we treat, and how we treat. And then I'll also go into some pharmacology details, focusing on the mechanisms of action and the adverse effects of major drugs that you need to know. Let's start with hypertension. It's definitely the more common disease. It affects about one in three U.S. adults. So hypertension is categorized into primary and secondary. And what's the difference between the two? So primary hypertension is also called essential hypertension, and basically it's idiopathic. We don't know what causes it. It has something to do with increased cardiac output or increased peripheral resistance, but we say idiopathic because we don't know what causes it. And this is the kind that affects more people. About 95% of people get primary hypertension. What causes secondary hypertension? So anything you can identify, right? Anyone know the most common cause? It's renal artery stenosis. Other causes include endocrine causes like hyperaldosteronism, hyperthyroidism, pheochromocytoma. That's super rare. And what else would you see with a pheochromocytoma? How about some episodes of headaches, sweating, right? And then what are some common medications that can cause secondary hypertension? Oral contraceptives are a very common cause. Also steroids, anything that is used as a decongestant, because you know those are the adrenergic agonists often. And then even NSAIDs can cause secondary hypertension. And then finally there's a disease. Let's say a guy wakes up with increased fatigue. He doesn't feel like he's well rested. He's taking a lot of naps during the day. His wife says he snores a lot at night. Obstructive sleep apnea, that's a super common cause, and that can lead to hypertension. A lot of times, though, the patients who have obstructive sleep apnea have other risk factors like obesity for primary hypertension as well. So how do we definitively diagnose someone with hypertension? I guess taking their blood pressure is a good start, but um, there's a few kind of cutoff values that we need to know, and these are a little bit tricky because the recommendations are always changing. So I'm going to tell you the recommendations that have most recently been set forth in 2018 from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. You shouldn't have to know their exact recommendations to be able to answer this one, though. What's normal blood pressure considered? About 120 over 80, right? So less than 120 over 80 is considered normal. Do you know what prehypertension is considered? Anywhere from 120 to 129 over less than 80. So I think of it as less than 130 over 80. And then stage 1 hypertension, 
Once you're past 130 over 80 in either the systolic or the diastolic, that's considered stage one hypertension. And then stage two hypertension, anything greater than 140 over 90. Now, what's the difference between hypertensive urgency and emergency? So both of them happen at a blood pressure of over 180 over 120, either systolic or diastolic as always. But the difference is that urgency does not have acute end organ damage, whereas emergency does have signs of acute end organ damage. So what would some of those signs be? Any neurologic changes, like a severe headache, confusion, papilledema, which is a sign of increased intracranial pressure, myocardial infarction, aortic dissection, injury to the kidney. These are all signs of hypertensive emergency. Now, does someone have to have a blood pressure of over 180 to over 120 to show up with hypertensive end organ damage? No. And it's the same thing with the guidelines set by the AHA and ACC. These cutoffs are based on normal population distributions, so there's always going to be outliers. When you're managing blood pressure, and this is based on what I've heard from many of the attendings I've worked with, when you're managing blood pressure, it's always important to know where the patient usually lies and what's normal for that patient. And then, based on the trends, you can make a decision regarding when to treat and when to escalate treatment. So why do we even bother treating hypertension? What do we want to prevent? We want to prevent the complications of hypertension, right? What are some of them? What are the cardiac complications? So most patients with hypertension actually die from cardiac complications. So coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, from left ventricular hypertrophy, they can get stroke, they can get renal failure. It also increases the risk of abdominal aortic aneurysm. And hypertension is also the most common cause of atrial fibrillation. So some serious cardiac complications. What are some of the retinal changes that we see with hypertension? So AV nicking, um, that reflects thickening of the vessels. It's arteriovenous nicking, okay? And it's just all those vessels in the retina getting thicker. What about something called cotton wool spots? Do you know what those are from? So that actually reflects infarction of the nerve fiber in the layer of the retina. So cotton wool spots and AV nicking are things you might see in the eye. And then the last one we already talked about a little, but papilledema, what does that reflect again? Increased ICP. And then what do you see in the kidney from hypertension? So you can get something called scler you can get sclerosis, so it's called nephrosclerosis of the afferent and efferent vessels, and that can affect the GFR. And if eventually you have decreased GFR, you can go into renal failure. So the bottom line is that uncontrolled hypertension is bad, and it affects nearly every organ system in the body. So how do we screen people for blood pressure? Well, we measure their blood pressure annually, right? Ideally, adults have an annual physical, and at every visit, we check their blood pressure according to recommendations by the USPSTF. So when we see a high blood pressure on one of those screenings, what do we do? Do we treat it right away? So usually, we recommend monitoring their blood pressure for a little while at home, um, and then we follow up in one to six months, depending on how high the blood pressure was at that visit. We also recommend lifestyle changes like diet and exercise because weight loss is one of the most effective ways of improving blood pressure. 
So at that follow-up visit, if it's still high, we treat. And what's the importance of getting some values from home monitoring? Well, we want to rule out white coat hypertension. So some patients, and I've seen this in clinic, there's some patients who get nervous when they visit the doctors and so their blood pressure escalates. And so we call that white coat hypertension. So you want to make sure their blood pressure is actually high even when they're at home and not just high when they're in the clinic. So let's say you have a 40-year-old gentleman and he comes to your clinic, has a blood pressure reading of 140 over 85, and so you send him home, counsel him on some diet and exercise lifestyle changes, and he comes back in three months and his blood pressure is still like 146 over 90, and he's made some of those changes, but it's still high, and he has some home monitorings to reflect that his blood pressure has been high. What do we want his goal blood pressure to be when we start treating? Again, these guidelines are a little bit difficult because there's different recommendations by different societies, but according to the JNC-8, the Joint National Committee 8, for healthy adults less than 60, and then for all diabetic patients, we want the goal blood pressure at less than 140 over 90. And then in the healthy population that's over 60, we would like it to be 150 over 90, okay? So if you're over 60 and not diabetic, it's 150 over 90. Everyone else, we want less than 140 over 90 per the JNC-8. And then also per the JNC-8, do you guys know, kind of just generally, what are the first-line agents for treatment of hypertension? Generally, we start with one of three choices. So either thiazides, ACE inhibitors, or ARBs, or calcium channel blockers, okay? So um, I don't want to be one of those people that says three and then actually gives you four things, so let me just clarify that ACEs and ARBs is kind of grouped into one category, okay? So thiazides, ACEs and ARBs, and then calcium channel blockers. So let's get into some further details about these drugs. I know this is the part everyone's been waiting for. So hydrochlorothiazide, chlorothalidone, metolazone, what are all these the first one kind of gave it away. These are the thiazide diuretics, right? And do you remember how these drugs work? They inhibit sodium chloride reabsorption in the distal convoluted tubule of the kidney. Okay. And what are some side effects of thiazides? Well, they inhibit sodium chloride reabsorption, so they can cause hyponatremia. But by inhibiting sodium reabsorption, they can also inhibit potassium reabsorption, so you can get hypokalemia as well. And the kidney is great because anytime you have hypokalemia, it's going to try and reabsorb that potassium further down in the collecting tubules, and it's going to exchange it for hydrogen. So what's a metabolic complication? A metabolic hypokalemic alkalosis, okay? But aside from hyponatremia and hypokalemia, thiazides can also elevate levels of some things. So what are those? Well, they can cause hyperglycemia, hyperlipidemia, hyperuricemia, and hypercalcemia. Okay, so glycemia, lipidemia, uricemia, and calcemia. Those can all be raised. So do you think thiazides would be a good choice in a patient that has gout? Probably not, because hyperuricemia, right? What about if someone has kidney stones? So actually, if someone has 
a lot of kidney stones, you might give them thiazides to try and get rid of the calcium that's in the collecting tubules and forming the, the stones, okay? So thiazides actually get rid of the calcium in the urine and they increase the calcium in the body. So you can actually give them to someone for kidney stones. If someone has gout, no. And then lastly, who would be allergic to thiazides? Anyone with sulfa drug allergies, right? So loop diuretics like furosemide, they're also considered a sulfa drug. So um, just keep in mind that if someone has that allergy, you wouldn't give them thiazides. Now, instead of treating your patient with a thiazide, what if you treated them with something like ketopril or lisinopril or enalapril? What drug is that? So these are the ACE inhibitors, okay? Remember, ACE inhibitors always end in pril. And how do these drugs work? So they inhibit the angiotensin converting enzyme. So they decrease production of angiotensin 2, right? And angiotensin 2 has several effects. We don't need to get into all of them now. But what's their ultimate effect on the glomerulus? So they cause vasodilation of the efferent arteriole, okay? ACE ends in E and they cause dilation of the efferent arteriole. So that actually decreases GFR because less blood is forced to be filtered through the glomerulus. So what are some major adverse effects of these drugs? Well, a lot of times you hear about patients complaining of cough, right? And then another more dangerous side effect is angioedema. Why do these happen with ACE inhibitors? So remember that in addition to angiotensin 1 conversion, ACE also inactivates bradykinin. So if you prevent that inactivation, then you increase levels of bradykinin, and that's actually what contributes to the cough and edema. So these can actually cause hyperkalemia, okay, because they're inhibiting the action of aldosterone. So what are contraindications to treatment with ACE inhibitors? Pregnancy, because it's a major teratogen. It can cause Potter sequence in, in infants. And also if you have bilateral renal artery stenosis, why would that be? Why wouldn't you want to give an ACE inhibitor in someone with bilateral renal artery stenosis? Well, remember how these drugs dilate the efferent arteriole and decrease GFR? So in someone with renal arterial stenosis, you already have decreased GFR, and these would just decrease it furthermore. So that patient might go into severe kidney failure. And then what types of patients should always be on an ACE inhibitor. So anyone who has diabetes, if they have uh, either microalbuminemia indicating damage to the kidney or if they have high blood pressure, you want to start them on an ACE inhibitor because it protects remodeling of the kidney and it prevents progression of renal disease. So in patients with diabetes, I always like to see if they're on an ACE inhibitor and if they're not, then I try to figure out why. So back to our patient that we talked about earlier, right, the one in his 40s with the high blood pressure. Let's say you started him on an ACE inhibitor, and a week later he comes back in and says, hey doc, I'm allergic, I got a cough when I started this medication. What do you do? Well, we have to switch the medication, right? It's not exactly an allergy because this is an expected side effect from the increased bradykinin. But if a patient gets a cough on an ACE inhibitor, they're not tolerating it well. So we switch the medication to what? Well, this is why we group ACEs and ARBs together. So if someone doesn't tolerate an ACE inhibitor very well, we can put them on an ARB or an angiotensin receptor blocker. 
What's the common drug ending for the angiotensin receptor blockers? So sartin, right? Losartin, valsartin. The angiotensin receptor blockers all end in sartin. What did ACE inhibitors end in again? Pril. That's really important to learn, guys. So ARBs act very similarly to ACE inhibitors, but they just don't have the bradykinin-associated effects. Okay, so they won't cause the cough, they won't cause the angioedema. Just like ACE inhibitors, though, the ARBs can act like teratogens. Okay, so you don't want to give these to pregnant women. Now, what's the last class of drugs that we said was a good initial treatment for hypertension? We did ACEs and ARBs, we did thiazides, calcium channel blockers, right? And calcium channel blockers are usually considered either dihydropyridine or non-dihydropyridine. What's the difference between those two classes, the DHP and the non-DHP? So mechanistically, they both block L-type calcium channels, right? And they both act at the smooth muscles. The only difference is that the non-DHPs affect cardiac muscles too. What are the names of the non-DHP calcium channel blockers? So those would be verapamil and diltiazem. And what effect do they have? So they block calcium channels in the heart, and so they actually decrease contractility of the heart. Do we want to use these for hypertension? Not really. What we do use for hypertension are the DHPs, the dihydropyridines. These don't affect the heart, they just affect the smooth muscle, and so they're really effective at treating hypertension. What is the name for DHPs? What's the common name ending there? So dipine, DHPs, dipine. So amlodipine, nimodipine, nifedipine, these are all dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. What are adverse effects of these drugs? They often cause peripheral edema and flushing, okay? You might hear about constipation and gingival hypertrophy. Those two are generally side effects of verapamil, which is a non-DHP. Adverse effects of dihydropyridines are usually peripheral edema and flushing. The edema is really common. Now let's talk about some drugs we might use in emergency situations, okay? Let's start with hydralazine. What does hydralazine do? So it works to dilate the arterioles, okay? So it actually, what it does is it reduces afterload for the heart. So the heart, it's easier for the heart to pump. What might be an adverse effect of hydralazine? I'm thinking about reflex tachycardia. So if suddenly the blood pressure drops because you give this drug, the heart is going to try and compensate by increasing heart rate, right? So you get reflex tachycardia with hydralazine. So you can actually give it in conjunction with beta blockers to try and prevent that. What's another drug that we often use for hypertensive emergency? So nitroprusside, okay? This drug, do you know how it works? It releases nitric oxide, so it increases CGMP release. And if you remember back to your biochemical pathways, that increased CGMP results in vasodilation. So let's say a patient comes in with hypertensive emergency. He's given nitroprusside, and all of a sudden he becomes hypoxic. He gets this almond breath odor to his breath, and he has pink skin. What happened there? 
So this patient's cyanotic, okay? Why is that? That's an adverse effect of nitroprusside. So in addition to releasing NO, it also releases cyanide. The one thing I want to caution you about, though, is not to confuse nitroprusside with nitroglycerin. When do we use nitroglycerin? So you usually give that to someone who you're, you think is having an MI, right? And what does that do? It vasodilates the veins to actually reduce the preload. You can contrast that to the drug that reduces the afterload by dilating the arterioles. What was that again? Hydralazine, okay? So remember the difference between hydralazine and nitroglycerin, and don't confuse nitroglycerin with nitroprusside, which causes cyanosis. And now this is my last hypertension question for you, I promise. Which drugs are okay to give to a pregnant woman with hypertension? There's four of them. They are labetalol, methyldopa, nifedipine, and hydralazine. And if you're having a hard time remembering them, I think it's almost like the alphabet, right? L-M-N, until it all goes to hell. So it's labetalol, methyldopa, nifedipine, and then it goes to hell with hydralazine. Whew, deep breath. We just covered a lot there with hypertension. So at this point, if you want to take a pause and come back to talk about hyperlipidemia, that's totally fine. If you're in it for the long haul, then let's get started with hyperlipidemia. So I'd like to start by going over the normal cholesterol levels, okay? What are normal cholesterol levels? Let's start with total cholesterol. Where do you want someone's total cholesterol to be when you get a lipid panel? So generally less than 200 is a good place. Okay, what about their LDL? Where do we like that to be? Less than 100, generally. And what about HDL? That's the good cholesterol, remember? Where do we want that? So greater than 50 is what I generally think about. I've seen greater than 60, but I've also seen that it's okay to have greater than 40 in men. I just think HDL over 50 or at least over 40 is generally good. And then finally, triglycerides, where do we like those to be? Less than 150, usually, okay? So a disturbance in the levels of any of these is considered a dyslipidemia. So usually, high cholesterol has to do with what? Your lifestyle, right? Diet, how you're eating. So what if a question asks you about a patient who develops an MI and he's only a teenager, what might have happened there? So he might have something called familial hypercholesterolemia. And anytime there's an inherited condition, we have to know the inheritance pattern. Do you know that? This is an autosomal dominant condition, okay? And what's the mutation in familial hypercholesterolemia? So these patients have an absent or a defective LDL receptor, okay? So they can't they can't take in the LDL and remove it from the bloodstream, or they have a defective or absent ApoB100 protein. Do you remember ApoB100 all the way back from biochem? So this is a molecule that helps LDL bind receptors so that it can be degraded, okay? So if you can't get LDL into cells because of these deficiencies, then LDL is high and you get hypercholesterolemia. 
There are other inherited dyslipidemias as well. I believe there's four types total. Um, and we don't need to get into all of these right now, but familial hypercholesterolemia, really think about that in a patient who gets an MI in his teens. So what are some physical findings in patients with hyperlipidemia? These patients often have xanthomas, right? Uh, these are kind of deposits of cholesterol. They're composed of lipid-laden histiocytes, and they can be kind of anywhere. They can deposit in the eyelids. Um, what would that be called? Xanthelasma. You kind of see those pictures classically on exams, um, kind of right medially, at the medial aspect of the eyelid, these patients have cholesterol deposits, and they're called xanthelasmas. What about if it's in the cornea? That would be a corneal arcus. And you can also see them in the tendon, right? That's a tendinous xanthoma. And usually, what's kind of the most common place to see a tendinous xanthoma? You think about the Achilles tendon. Uh, just because the skin over the Achilles tendon is so thin, they tend to deposit there. So why do we treat hypercholesterolemia? We treat it because it causes atherosclerosis, right? Think back to how those plaques form. Remember the LDLs floating around in the blood, the macrophages eat it up, they create those foam cells, you get the fatty streaks. It's basically an inflammatory reaction that leads to stenosis of the vessels, right? And we all know that that leads to coronary artery disease, which nobody likes to have. So how do we decide who gets treated for hypercholesterolemia? Is it just anyone with an abnormal lipid profile? So usually anyone who's had a coronary event or stroke or TIA, they automatically get treated. Anyone who has diabetes gets treated. Anyone who has an LDL over 190 gets treated. And then for the rest of the people who still have high LDL, but maybe not quite as high as 190, we calculate something called the atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk score, or the ASCVD risk score. So if they have a score greater than 7.5%, meaning that they have greater than 7.5% likelihood of having an adverse cardiovascular outcome in the next 10 years, then we start them on treatment. So when I say treatment, what treatment am I talking about? What's the first line treatment for hypercholesterolemia? Statins, right? Pravastatin, atorvastatin, lovastatin. These are the only drugs that have been shown to reduce mortality in patients with coronary artery disease. So how do statins work? What's their mechanism? They inhibit a specific enzyme. It's called HMG-CoA reductase. This is involved in the formation of a cholesterol precursor. So they inhibit the formation of mevalonate. And then over time, they actually result in increased expression of the LDL receptor because they're decreasing cholesterol synthesis, and so that LDL receptor gets upregulated. So this is associated with a permanent change, and this is the only drug that has been shown to decrease mortality. What are some major adverse effects of statins? So statin-induced myopathy, right, is the one that you most often hear about. And this is actually reason enough to discontinue the drug if patients start complaining of myopathy. So if your patient who's on a statin comes in complaining of muscle pains, how might you confirm the degree of this patient's myopathy? What lab value might you use? 
Creatinine kinase, that's usually elevated in a patient with statin-induced myopathy. And actually, there's some drugs that can be taken with statins that often worsen myopathy. Do you know what those medications are? They're also used for controlling cholesterol. So I'm thinking of fibrates as well as niacin. Okay, these are two groups of drugs that can worsen the myopathy associated with statins. And what's another adverse effect of statins to look out for? Hepatotoxicity. So these can often elevate liver enzymes. Now statins are kind of the best drugs that we have to get LDLs under control. And they also do a decent job at taking care of triglycerides. But if someone has isolated hypertriglyceridemia, there's another class of drugs that you might use. What's generally the first-line treatment for hypertriglyceridemia? So fibrates, gemfibrozil, phenofibrate. These are drugs that are used to treat hypertriglyceridemia. And why would you want to treat hypertriglyceridemia? What's a complication of that? It causes pancreatitis, right? Don't want to get pancreatitis. So what's the mechanism of action of fibrates? So these drugs upregulate this enzyme called lipoprotein lipase. If you remember, that's found on along the endothelium of blood vessels, and that helps to clear triglycerides that are floating in the blood. So it upregulates that enzyme, increases triglyceride clearance, and in addition, it also activates this molecule called PPAR-alpha, and that ends up inducing HDL synthesis. So remember that fibrates are really good at lowering triglycerides, and they can also increase HDL. And then what are some of the adverse effects of fibrates? So we already kind of mentioned myopathy in conjunction with the statins. And then another side effect, it's gallstones. So I don't know if it helps you, but you know the fibrate gem fibrozil. Think of gallstones as little gems in the gallbladder and um, gem fibrozil along with other fibrates can cause gallstones. And now there's another drug besides fibrates that's really good for reducing triglycerides. Do you know what that is? I'll give you a hint. You can get it over the counter. So fish oil or omega B supplements these are really good for reducing triglycerides as well. So if you don't get enough control with fibrates alone, you can actually add fish oil supplements to the fibrates for your regimen. Now, what was the other drug we talked about that worsened statin-induced myopathy? Remember niacin? So what does niacin do? Niacin actually inhibits an enzyme called hormone-sensitive lipase, which is found in adipose tissue. So that leads to decreased synthesis of VLDLs, and it also actually increases HDL synthesis by inhibiting its uptake in the liver. So I kind of contrast hormone-sensitive lipase with lipoprotein lipase because hormone-sensitive lipase is in the adipose tissue, whereas lipoprotein lipase is found outside of tissue on the endothelium of blood vessels. So remember that fibrates upregulate LPL and that helps to get rid of triglycerides and other cholesterols, whereas niacin actually inhibits hormone-sensitive lipase, which would otherwise be dumping cholesterols into the bloodstream. So what are some side effects of niacin? Classically, it causes that flushing reaction. 
It can also cause hyperglycemia and hyperuricemia. Probably the most important thing for you to know is the flushing. And why does the flushing happen? Do you know? So niacin increases prostaglandin release, okay? So knowing that, that it increases prostaglandin release and that's why the flushing happens, what might be an effective treatment if someone were to get this side effect? NSAIDs. NSAIDs can inhibit prostaglandin synthesis and so they would alleviate that flushing. Other side effects are hyperglycemia and hyperuricemia. So avoid this in a patient with diabetes or gout. Now the rest of the drugs that we use to treat cholesterols actually have not been shown to be super effective. Statins are really the only drug that has been shown to reduce mortality and decrease cardiovascular risk. So statins are really the first line agent and kind of the sole agent that is good at reducing mortality. But there are some other agents that you need to kind of know for the exam, so we'll go through them quickly. A newer agent that you should be familiar with is a molecule, I mean it's a drug that inactivates a molecule called PCSK9. And PCSK9 activates degradation of the LDL receptor. So by in inactivating PCSK9, you actually get increased LDLR expression, and that allows for more LDL to be removed from the bloodstream. That was a long explanation, but I was asking a question, which is, what is that drug? Do you know? This is a class of drugs called PCSK9 inhibitors. So their names are alirocumab, evolucumab. Anytime you have that MAB ending, it's a monoclonal antibody. So these are monoclonal antibodies against PCSK9. And this group of drugs actually has some kind of unique side effects that none of the other cholesterol drugs have. Do you know what that is? So they can cause neurological effects. So they can lead to delirium or dementia-like symptoms, okay? So these drugs affect the brain. And they're unique because they're antibodies against PCSK9. So another drug that often shows up on exams is cholestyramine. Do you know what cholestyramine does? So this is a bile acid resin. What it does is it prevents intestinal reabsorption of bile acids. Okay, so you're dumping out more bile acids and then the liver actually has to use up more cholesterol in order to make bile acids. So you're getting rid of something so that the liver will make more bile acid. What are side effects of cholestyramine? Well, you can imagine you're going to get diarrhea because you're dumping out all this bile acid. And then bile does what? It helps to absorb fat, fat right? So you end up getting deficiencies of your fat-soluble vitamins because you're not absorbing fat as well. And then they can also cause cholesterol stones. What about ezetimibe? So ezetimibe actually prevents absorption of cholesterol in the small intestine. So side effects of this? Again, you can imagine you'd get diarrhea because all that cholesterol stays in the gut and it acts as an osmotic agent pulling water in. And Ezetimibe also undergoes hepatic metabolism, so you get increased LFTs. So really the takeaway for these, there are a lot of drugs for treating cholesterol and they can be overwhelming, but remember that statins are really the gold standard treatment. They're the only ones that can reduce mortality. And then also you can use fibrates to um, decrease your triglycerides. And if fibrates alone don't work, what do we add? Fish oils, that's right. I know that was a lot, though, for both hypertension and hyperlipidemia, 
So let's kind of start at the beginning, and I'm just going to ask you three questions to make sure you remembered everything. So what were the first-line drugs for treating hypertension again? Thiazides, ACE inhibitors and ARBs, and calcium channel blockers. What's the first-line drug for hypercholesterolemia? Statins, right? Only one shown to reduce mortality. You figure out if you need to go on a statin based on calculating their cardiovascular risk. And then, what was the drug that we used for hypertriglyceridemia? Fibrates and fish oils if it's still high. So good job, guys. I know kind of firsthand how hard it can be to study all this pharmacology and get the side effects straight and get everything straight. At the step one level, you really need to know the side effects that are most common and most commonly affect patients. So that's what I tried to focus on. And I hope I kind of helped give you the big picture of hypertension and hyperlipidemia in terms of why we treat, when we treat, and how we treat, okay? If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, as always, visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org. Thank you for your time. I'll talk to you again soon. In the meantime, there's no need to cry SOS when you have Spoonful of Sugar at your service.